The Super Bowl wasn't the only thing that was started in 1967. In 1967, there was a British gentleman named Paddy Roy Bates, and he purchased a, a World War II gun fortress that was off the coast of Britain. And in 1967, he declared that it was now the sovereign principality of Sealand. He tried to make it into his own special nation. And, and now, today, uh, it continues that claim, this old, broken-down World War II fortress out in the uh, waters off the coast of Britain, looks something like an oil rig, and that is the Principality of Sealand. Now, no other nation recognizes this, but uh, the, the, the family of, of Patty Roy Bates continue to uh, promote the idea. They even have their own website, and they mint their own coins, and they print their own stamps. And furthermore, you can become a royal of Sealand. You can become part of the nobility of Sealand. And I, I got to tell you, I am debating whether or not I want to be the Duke of Sealand or, or the Lord or the Baron. Um, you, you get your pick of titles. I guess the only thing you can't be is Prince or King of Sealand. But here's the thing. It's real easy to do. I just have to send them money. And then I get to be whatever royal... T- and, of course, royal titles go for different prices depending on how high up you want to go. Makes it one of the most uh, honest nations on earth. At least they admit that they're handing out uh, favors for, for money. But the thing is, I can't quite bring myself to become one of the nobles of Sealand because it's not worth much. There's not much to it. You don't have to know much. At least if you're part of the nobility of another nation, at least you have some responsibilities and have to know some things, and you have to have some history, and you have to have some connection to the past. Here at Sealand, you just pay money. Makes me think that what I ought to do is just uh, declare my acreage in Arkansas to be um, some sovereign nation, and the next thing you know, I'm the... I'm the mayor of Pumpkinville. Why not? I could do it. And it's just as good as a, uh, being a noble of Sealand. But if the folks in Sealand are out there listening, I would still like to be a noble, and uh, I would accept any title they offer me as long as it's free. Here's the thing. If, if there's not much to something, then, then why own it? Why be a part of it? If Christianity is so simple and basic and meaningless that there's not much to it, then, then why bother at all? It seems like it's okay to say that there are some basic things that every Christian ought to know. That there's some basic things that make being a Christian meaningful. That make being a Christian worth something. And what I want to do in this... Uh, series of talks is find out what is it that is basic and actually ask the question, is it even possible to determine basics? Can we really draw a line around some things and say, this is essential and this is secondary? Can we say this is foundational 
and this is an extension of the foundational. Should we do that? Maybe we shouldn't. And if we do say that some things are basic and essential, then how do we know that what we think is basic is really basic? And how do we know that something we don't think is basic actually turns out to be basic? How are you supposed to know these things? Well, there's a real curious statement in Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews 6, this, um, this group that is being encouraged by this majestic message in uh, the book or the sermon of Hebrews, is being in, they're being encouraged to wake up, to be strong, to keep going. And, and part of the, um, the chiding that is coming out through this message is that they need to move beyond the basics, or they need to build on the basics. The text of uh, Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 says, let's stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let's go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. And as you hear that list, you might be thinking, wait, wait, I would like some further instruction about laying on of hands. Just exactly what's happening there. Or maybe you're saying, I I would like to know more about the resurrection of the dead. Or maybe you're content. To know what you know. Maybe there's not much more to know. Maybe you'd like to know the secrets to eternal judgment. But maybe there's just not much to know. Maybe it's just the fact that there is eternal judgment. And that's all you need to know. And I think that here in Hebrews. The the message is. We don't need to keep going over this again and again and again. This is the foundation. Accept it and build on it. It doesn't say that these things are not important. I think we can just look at that list of things there in verse 2. Baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of dead, eternal judgment. All of those seem to be pretty important, especially if you understand laying on of hands as the passing on of authority and leadership. So we need to do something with these basics and move on to maturity. At least there's some differentiation right here in this biblical statement, a, a, a message at the time of the first generation of the church, where there's some differentiation between basic teachings and what we get with Christian maturity when we build on those basic teachings. So is it possible then to develop some sort of criteria so that we can identify a basic? Maybe. It might be possible. Maybe we could say that uh, things that are irreducible... You can't break them down. You can't say that there's something more important to understand to understand that thing. Like, for example, God. You don't break God down into anything else. Everything else is defined by God. At the same time, Christ is the revelation of God and we do understand God through Christ. Okay, just something to think about. Another thing we might say is a basic is something that's entry level. 
It's the, it's the essential, it's the first level, it's the kindergarten stuff that you need to know. Like Christ. I would say if someone's going to claim to be a Christian, at some level, they have to understand who is Christ and what is he all about. And baptism seems to be an entry-level experience, an event, and the understanding of it is that it is a death to an old way of life and a new birth into a new way of life. Birth is usually the starting place for one's experiences in this world. So there's some sense that a basic would have that, that very simple entry-level uh, weight about it. Maybe it's a recurring theme. You see a lot of these in scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, or call it the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, the first part of the Bible, the second part of the Bible. And we'll talk more about that in, in, in uh, future talks. But you see these recurring themes, what we call the Exodus, and that is God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt and setting them up and bringing them to a land that he promised to their forefather Abraham. That event, that action that God takes seems to be of vital importance for the people to understand their identity. And it comes up again and again and again. When you look through the story of God's people, uh, in, the, in the books of the Old Testament, in the books of the Hebrew Bible, you see over and over again that they are reminded of what God did for them. The same thing happens for the, uh, for the early church, and really what happens for the early church has to be true for the church throughout the ages, even today, that what God does through Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection and in his exaltation and his promised return that becomes very important and a recurring theme to Christian existence. Another possible criteria is that something that is a virtue, and by virtue we mean a, um, a, a deep concept that ought to guide one's life. Things like holiness and justice and salvation, these things show up again and again in the message of Scripture. And they are things that seem to matter in the world we live in, even outside the Bible and outside uh, the, the life experience of a believer and a follower of God. Purity matters. Justice matters. Equality matters. Uh, saving life rather than destroying life matters. These are important things. But there are some, some problems with establishing a list or a criteria or a, uh, uh, a reduced catalog of things that we say, here it is, here are the basics, these 10 things, these 12 things, these seven things. When we do that, we start to show our biases about what we think is important rather than being guided by God. Uh, and then we always run into things that just aren't consistent. Let me give you some example of that. Um, for example, uh, dependent things, things that are not reducible, are still important. Baptism, I would argue, is important, and, and, and we'll probably talk about it in a future talk. But at the same time, baptism without some connection to Jesus Christ 
or to God or to salvation makes no sense at all. It becomes an empty ritual. Likewise with communion. Unless communion, uh, we understand its connection to Jesus Christ and the event that um, God worked through Jesus on the cross and his promises. If we don't understand it in connection to that, then it's just a snack. Really. It's an empty ritual. But that doesn't mean that it's important. And not important. It is important. Uh, Revelation is always unfolding. And some of the things that, that we might call basics haven't happened yet. I would say that it's a basic thing that every Christian ought to know is that Jesus has promised that he will return. But it's really hard to know that. And it's hard to know much about that when it hasn't happened yet. But this isn't the first time that's been the case for God's people. God's people for centuries heard that there was going to be a Messiah. And they lived in hopeful expectation of that Messiah. Now, they didn't understand everything about it. And they had some, they had some ideas about Messiah that just weren't right. But they lived in hopeful expectation that that Messiah would come. You and I live on the other side of this and we see what's happened and we believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But when that was future tense, that was still a very important thing. But you don't know everything about it yet. So the good news is that even though there's some future tense things that we don't yet know everything about, this isn't the first time that that's been the case for God's people. So rest easy. Uh, themes that recur can always be reinterpreted. And that's not a bad thing as long as the reinterpretation fits. Let me, let me give an example of what I, I mean here. For the longest time, God's people thought that having a kingdom was important. We hear the story, starting with the prophet Samuel, where God's people wanted a kingdom. They asked for a king. They said they needed a kingdom. God said, you don't need a kingdom. You don't need a king. You just need me. They said, no, we really want a kingdom. And so God, in his grace, gives them this, even though he knows it's not good for them. And they get it wrong often. They, they get it horribly wrong over and over again. But God, again, in his grace, says, I'm going to give you a better kingdom. And I'm going to give you a better king. And we see in Jesus that better king. And yet, Jesus has to redefine what kingdom means. Now, he's really taking us back to what God always intended with kingdom. But for his day and age, and for the people who are hearing it, it is difficult for them, even for his disciples, to hear his new interpretation of kingdom because it's not what they expected. But it's what was always intended. And so sometimes we hear things that sound like new interpretations, and we might be surprised to find out it's what God always intended. It must have been very difficult for the, uh, the people of God, the Jewish followers of God, uh, who were at that meeting in Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15, when they say, wait a second, you're telling us that people can come into the kingdom and they... they do not have to become children of Abraham first. And they look at the scriptures and they hear the experiences of, of the witnesses to what God is doing in his spirit. And they say, 
They come up with this conclusion. They say, you know what? It's not what we expected, but it's what God always intended. Yeah, it's always been that way. So the theme doesn't go away, but we understand how the theme really applies. The practice, here's another challenge to creating our list of criteria. If we put on there every virtue that we want to lock in, there, we, it can always be superseded by the fact that a virtue practiced is always better than a virtue taught. That when we're teaching something, when we're teaching a concept or a doctrine about a virtue, living it out and practicing it is always more important. For example, it's one thing to say, here's what the definition of biblical justice is. Here's what the definition of justice and what we ought to know about it and what we need to think about it. But then we go about our lives and we behave and act in injustice. That's the old challenge between faith and works. If we know it, then it ought to be, and it's really important and it's basic, then it ought to be something that we do as well. Okay, so if this is the case that we can't just easily come up with our own little preferenced set of cataloged ideas, and I, I, I tell you, it's even challenged me in, in designing this, this set of, uh, of talks, of lessons that, well, how do I know? Is this just something that I'm, that I'm uh, proud of and that I want to talk about, or is this something that really matters? I think that if you look over time and you look through the witness of Scripture and you look through history, you find out that there are ways that these basics are taught. And some things become important because they've, they've stood the test of time. You have this in Exodus 12. That in Exodus 12, um, when the Passover is taking place, it's about to take place, and God is giving the instruction to Moses, and Moses is, to, is there to instruct the people. In verse 24, he says, you remember these instructions. They are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. And that permanent law and these instructions are the way that they are supposed to eat the Passover lamb and eat the Passover bread and all of the things that they are supposed to do as God is about to act in a mighty way to deliver them from their oppressors. And they must put the blood of the lamb over the, uh, the doorposts of their house. He says, now you remember these things. And when you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. Although he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. This, comes, this is being spoken as a real-time event. But it's being remembered for generations beyond that event. And so one generation is passing down to the next until finally you get so far removed from the actual event that there's nobody alive who remembers it firsthand. And yet the meaning of it is still there. I would say that's a basic. That this is where they find their identity. This is their foundational story. This is their, their narrative that explains everything else. And if they can teach that to their children, 
They're not just teaching them a bunch of memorized facts, but they are doing something. They're coming together. They're sitting at a meal. And they're explaining what this means. And in that, they're telling the story of God and who they are in light of what God has done. And that has to get reinterpreted in later centuries because there, there is no place to give the sacrifice of the lamb. But the meaning is still there. The story is still there. You find the same thing uh, <clears throat> after what God does through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that's just filled with all sorts of problems. And he wraps up his message to them and he says, I passed on to you what was most important. Not something important, not a thing that's important, but I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. There's that that chain of distribution, that chain of ownership. It got passed on to me. I'm passing it on to you. You're going to pass it on to others. What is that? It's this. Christ died for our sins, just like the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just like the scripture said. He's saying that there is something of basic foundational importance And in fact, if you go back and you read 1 Corinthians, every issue, no matter how unique to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, we've got women, they're praying and prophesying and they're not wearing any hats. What are we going to do about that? You go back, even those sort of issues, he answers them and he finds the answer in this story, this event, and says that is of most importance. And every issue has been answered out of the significance and the weight of that which was passed on to him and he passed on to them. So what basics ought we to know? Well, it all depends on what we mean by the word know. There are things you can know. There are facts you can know. There are things you can memorize. And then there are people you can know. In Philippians 3, 8 through 9, uh, Paul shows the Christians in Philippi that um, it's great that they know a lot of things. And he even uses himself as an example and says that he knows a lot of things. But he says, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson wrote in one of his books that um, it's a very important thing whether or not somebody is dead or alive, and what that means about knowing them. So that people who are dead, we can know a lot of things about them, but we can never know them if we didn't know them while they were alive, if they're lost to us in history. But if we say that Jesus Christ is alive, then we can in some way know him, not just know about him, but know him. 
Paul is talking about the risen Christ, and he, he says, I, I, I would give up everything just to know Jesus Christ and to know more about him. I, I, the rest of it isn't as important as knowing him. So there's something about that knowledge of Christ himself that seems to be pretty basic. In Hebrews 4.12, this, this message that is meant to encourage tired Christians, there's a statement about God's word. And, and keep in mind that, 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 they're not, that here in Hebrews, that's not a description of a Bible like you and I have it. If it was, it would only contain about, oh, three and chapters and a few odd verses of Hebrews because it's in the process of being written. Here he's talking about scripture and he's talking about the word of God, but he's also talking about the messages of God and the spoken word of God. And he's saying that that word of God is alive and it is active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Great image. What does it mean? It means that this word that we hear and that we preach and that we teach and that we adore and and we question and we ponder. It's not dead letters on a page. It has a power to it. It's living. And just like we can know Christ, who's very much alive, then this scripture that you and I study is in some way very much living. And it is as fresh and real and as important today as it was when it was first spoken, first written, first given, first preached, first told. And every generation owns it again and again and again. So some quick observations as we wrap this up. Things that are basic then, we might say, are relational above rational. Now that doesn't mean that basic things are irrational. It just means that we can't stop at something being rational and logical and objective. I think those are good things. And I think it's good for us to all agree that some things are important. But ultimately, we want it to be something relational. If it enables us to know more about the mind of Christ and the person of Christ, if it enables us to grow closer to God and to mature as believers then I would say that's a basic thing and that's something to build on. A basic thing would have a foundational importance for followers of Christ and the people of God. It has to be good for us in some way. It has to be healthy. It has to be um, supportive and constructive and it helps us grow. It can't be one of those um, debatable issues that Paul talks about in Romans 14, special days, what food you can eat. It can't be the sort of things that Jesus says that the kingdom of God is not made up of these things. It can't be some of those uh, controversies and about genealogies and lists and other things that Paul tells Titus and Timothy to stay away from. It's got to be things that are good for building up the followers of Jesus Christ, and building up the community of God. <laughs> you might say that basic things, and, and when we talk about things that are basic, that the knowing of those things and the knowing of those persons like God and Christ and the Spirit 
The knowing and the doing are both important. So that we know what we do, and we do what we know. You can see that in in so many things that we do that take the communion, for example. It's good for us to know what we're doing when we are involved in communion. And if we know what it's about and what it means, then we ought to do it. Those are some criteria that I've named here as basic. I don't even know if they're criteria. Just might be some some principles. But obviously there's going to be some things that are basic. And if the word is living and if we can know Christ, then it just might be that if we strive to know what's basic, it just might be revealed to us. Because if Christ is living and if the word of God is living, then it's not something that we have to dig down into the earth like archaeology and find because it's been lost to us. It's something that's as close to us as a relationship with our creator and our savior. Now, obviously, the word of God becomes important in this. So it might be a good place to start in our uh, next episode, in our next talk to say, well, then what is this Bible and where did we get it? And where did it come from? Is it a magic book that fell out of heaven? Or is it God's word? Did the spirit seize the people who wrote it and automatically take over their hands and make them write the words that they didn't want to write? Or just what exactly is going on here? That's a good place for us to go next week. So that's our basic for tonight. Um, What we're going to do right now is we're going to uh, sing a song together. Uh, Communion's prepared in room 100. And uh, after this, Blake will dismiss us in prayer. Let's stand and sing.